How I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death. On some scarred slope of battered hill, when spring comes round again this year, and the first meadow flowers appear. God knows twere better to be deep, pillowed in silk and scented down, where love throbs out in blissful sleep, pulse nigh to pulse and breath to breath, where hushed awakenings are dear. But I have a rendezvous with death, at midnight in some flaming town, when spring trips north again this year, and I to my pledged word am true, I shall not fail at that rendezvous. That was a poem by Alan Seeger, an American soldier who died at the Somme on the 4th of July, 1916. Which um, I suppose we're using as a theme for today's, uh, the 17th episode of Blurney Billage, to which you're all very welcome. Uh, where myself, Johnny Dillon, and my colleague Claire Dillon. Oh, hi Claire Dillon. Hello folks. Um, we will, I suppose, have a special episode in store today for you to explore and commemorate the 100 year anniversary of the Armistice. Uh, the date on the 11th of November 1918, which marks the cessation of hostilities between the Allies uh, and Germany after four years of carnage we know as World War One. And this is a war of hitherto unseen devastation which took the lives of an estimated 9 million combatants, approximately 35,000 Irish, they think, although there's no clear... There's True, no, there's yeah, no there's been agreement. some dispute about the numbers. Um, and 7 million civilians. To achieve our ends today, we're going to employ a kind of different approach than the usual format that we use for these podcasts. And since we're not trained historians or experts on this period of European history, uh, we're going to basically proceed by bringing you the testimonies of the people who were there. So we have different memoirs and, and books that we've chosen, readings and poems and so on. And then we have some um, Irish voices from the archive, largely recorded in the, the Urban Folklore Project, 1979, individuals who were in the trenches, so who were who were... Uh, at the front fighting at the Somme and so on and who were recorded by the folklore department and then we'll look at some I suppose the, the involvement of the Irish in the war with again some of these the voices and, and the memoirs the books that we'll be that we'll looking at um, but we'll take an international flavour won't we because we've yes. got um, British writers we've got German writers German writers uh, Anglo-American British German and Irish so there's a few different books we're going to look at and we want to look at yeah different perspectives so to look at it from the German perspective as well as well as that of the the, uh, the English and the Irish and so on. So and looking at it from the female point of view as well, as yes, opposed to well, the, the, well yes, um, equally important. They suffered uh, a different kind of war, certainly, but um, no less severe. There's two female authors, yeah. Um, so The Glory of the Trenches is by Coningsby Dawson, who's he's an Anglo-American writer. Uh, an amazing book. It's kind of short enough, and it's, the text is all available online. Um, the Stand of the Munsters, um, which is a kind of fairly grim description of the Munster Fusiliers by Mrs. Victor Rickard and Storm of Steel by Ernst Junger, which is an amazing, amazing mm-hmm. book. Um, and then Testament of Youth by Vera Britton. So these are the readings that we're going to use, but then we're going to use kind of poems and other writings and so on to supplement this, plus um, audio recordings. And we have two um, interviews as well for this podcast, one with um, Kate Manning, who's the principal archivist in UCD Archives here, uh, and with another one that Claire did with Evelyn Flanagan, who's the head of special collections. And these are to mark kind of the, the UCD's Google Arts and Culture, the, the Armistice 
uh, exhibition that's going to be available online and from, to highlight the, the collections that they have the different collections yeah, shared exactly, amongst yeah. the cultural heritage units here which are incredibly broad so from the 9th of November this exhibition will be going live online but do remember that these collections are open to the public as well so if anything that we come across today in terms of the cultural heritage units and um, kind of piques your interest do, do feel free to kind of get in touch with the respective units or ourselves and you can come in and actually view the primary sources so um so yeah we're going to listen to the stories of those who left their loved ones and left their familiar homesteads and stepped off the well-trodden paths of civilian life and into the fray of the trenches where death and destruction faced them on all sides i'm going to read a bit so our first kind of companion on the road is going to be coningsby dawson he's going to take us to the front basically uh, and this is his book the glory of the trenches so Collingsby talks about basically becoming, uh, he, he goes and becomes an officer. He, he decides to join join the war effort from America. Um, but there's a description here, kind of, the, the, some of the descriptions focus on the difference, I suppose, of the life of the civilian or the life. He's kind of uh, changed utterly, basically, uh, with this experience and with the training and, and everything that he's seen afterwards. And he says here at the start of this book, there's one person I've missed since my return to New York. This is when he comes back, come back to America. I've caught glimpses of him disappearing around corners, but he dodges. I think he's a bit ashamed to meet me. That person is my old civilian self. What a full-blown egoist he used to be. How full of golden plans for his own advancement. How terrified of failure, of disease, of money losses, money losses, of death, of all the temporary, external, non-essential things that had nothing to do with the spirit. War is in itself damnable, a profligate misuse of the accumulated brain stuff of centuries. Nevertheless, there is many a man who has no love of war, who previous to the war had cramped his soul with littleness and was chased by the bayonet of duty into the bloodstained largeness of the trenches, who has learnt to say, thank God for this war. He thanks not, not because of the carnage, but because when the wine press of new ideals was being trodden, he was born in an age when he could do his share. His view is kind of... Um, well, not extremely, but it's a, it's a very, it's a different one, I suppose. And he talks about the religious aspect, almost, that comes out of these people who are finding themselves in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And he talks about uh, the appearance of kind of, of God or these holy, transcendental aspect, I suppose, to, to the whole thing. Um, and I suppose as well, the, the point is even that the people who were sent off were ordinary people as well, who, who went mm -hmm. there, ordinary kind of men who found themselves in these situations. This is back to, to Coningsby's book, The Glory of the Trenches. He says, there's a point I want to make clear before I forget it. All these men, whether they're capturing Hun dugouts at the front or taking prisoner their own in their own despair in English hospitals, are perfectly ordinary and normal. Before the war, they were shop assistants, cab drivers, plumbers, lawyers, vaudeville artists. They were men of no heroic training. Their civilian callings and their previous social status were too various for anyone to suppose that they were heroes ready-made at birth. Something has changed. Something has happened to them since they marched away in khaki. Something that has changed them. They're as completely remade as St. Paul was after he had his vision of the opening heavens on the road to Damascus. They've brought their vision back with them to civilian life, despite the lost arms and legs which they scarcely seem to regret. Their souls still triumph over the body and the temporal. As they hobble through the streets of London, they display the same gay courage that was theirs when at zero hour, with a 50-50 chance of death, they hopped over the top for the attack. But, um, Can I jump in there? Please, yeah, yeah. That struck me there about... Um, what was it this kind of change i suppose from civilian to officer yeah one of the articles that i mentioned to you about 
French culture that I read. Um, Graeme Seal was the author in 2013. It's one to look out for. We're here because we're here. French culture of the Great War. Mm. But he speaks about, in terms of the folklore of the trench, he speaks about, because we often um, touch on liminal spaces, mm. and he makes the point, whether you believe it or not, that there was this kind of liminal period and liminal space um, between the civilian entering training and then being made kind of remade almost oh, yeah. control taken away his kind of individuality taken away and becoming part of this n- new insular community yeah which was really interesting in terms of folklore study about the impact that that has on a person and the new society that he becomes a part of yeah you're remade i guess yeah. in that and 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 Connie's goes on about um about fighting his own kind of his own fear and so on at one point, he's terrified to, of what he might find in the trenches. And then, after he's gone through his training, he sees a headline saying that peace is about to be declared, which is a false headline, it turns out. And he weeps and feels really upset that he's not going to get to go. Okay. And then he realises that some fundamental change has occurred in him. You know, that's, that's some, some shift has happened or whatever. Um, I suppose to move on, to go to the front with, with Collingsby, basically, um, he's, I suppose that the, when he gets to France, he describes kind of even how they, they arrive and when their company arrive, they're just, they start to see all these kind of bedraggled brigades and, and, um, and soldiers around and they're trying to report to someone and the, that's like, I don't know, nobody cares, no one knows. They realise how kind of useless they are basically there. But as he, he, he starts describing passing through the towns, which start relatively normally uh, until they get up to the mayhem of, of the front, which is just pure, pure carnage basically. Um, but he says here... Uh, after trudging about six miles, we arrived at the camp and found that it was out of food and that all the tents were occupied. We stretched our sleeping bags on the ground and went to bed supperless. We had no food all day. Next morning we were told that we ought to jump on an ammunition lorry if we wanted to get any further on our journey. Nobody seemed to want us particularly, and no one could give us the least information as to where our division was. It was another lesson, if that were needed, of our total unimportance. While we were waiting on the roadside, an Australian brigade of artillery passed, up, passed by. The men's faces were dreary with fatigue. The gunners were dismounted and marched as in a trance. The harness was muddy, the steel rusty, the horses lean and discouraged. We understood that they were pulling out of an, from an offensive in which they had received a bad cutting up. To my overstrained imagination, it seemed that the men had the vision of death in their eyes. Um, he carries on. Eventually, they meet up with the division that, that, they're, that they're meant to. And he also describes the, the, the fact that how strange, how strange it is to be suddenly cast into this kind of life and death situation with people you've never met. Mm. It's not as though you've gone through an enormous amount of training and formed these close bonds with people, but you're suddenly, you don't know the you're person next to you. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're like, so he says, after three days of waiting, my division arrived and I was attached to a battery. I had scarcely time to make the acquaintance of my new companions when we pulled into my first attack. We hooked in at dawn and set out through a dense white mist. The mist was wet and miserable, but excellent for our purpose. It prevented us from being spotted by enemy balloons and airplanes. We made all the haste that was possible, but in places the roads were blocked by other batteries moving into new positions. We passed through the town, above which the Virgin floated with the infant Jesus in her arms. This is where he comes to a town, he sees this... um, image there's a statue of the virgin the, the virgin with the infant jesus holding him out over this tower basically mm-hmm. um, and it says that, that it was a superstition with the french that so long as that she didn't fall things would go well with the allies this is his oh, first sight in this ruined town and the statue is still there one mother one wondered whether she was really holding him out to bless her attitude might equally have been that of one who was flinging him down into the shambles disgusted with this travesty on religion the other side of the town the ravages of war were far more marked 
All the way along the roadside were clumps of little crosses, French, English, German, planted above the hurried graves of the brave fellows who had fallen. Ambulances were picking their way warily, returning with the last night's toll of wounded. We saw newly dead men and horses pulled to one side who had been caught in the darkness by the enemy's harassing fire. In places, the country had holes the size of quarries where mines had exploded and shells from large-caliber guns had detonated. Bedlam was raging up front. Shells went screaming over us, seeking out victims in the back country. To have been there by oneself would have been most disturbing, but the men about me seemed to regard it as perfectly ordinary and normal. I steadied myself by their example. This is the kind of, the, 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 um, I suppose, the strangest of how normal this, the entire scenario gradually becomes. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you notice sometimes, especially in Ernst Junger's writing, is the kind of, there's an emotionless um, quality to these really detailed descriptions that don't moralise or they don't describe how awful this is. They, and they don't necessarily glorify it either, but it's, it's just these factual. really cinematic kind of, kind of yeah, clear visions of, of hell, basically, and, and just describing a kind of weird indifference to the whole the whole thing that, that arrives. Um, I want to get to to this particular kind of, I suppose, part where they're, 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 um, they're traipsing through the front at, at dawn, basically. He says, It had been raining when we crept out of our kennels to go forward. It seems unnecessary to state that it had been raining, for it had always been raining at the front. I don't remember what degree of mud we had attained. We had a variety of objectives, and none of them polite, to describe each stage. The worst of all is what we called god-awful mud. I don't think it was as bad as that, but it was bad enough. Everything was dim and clammy and spectral. At the hour of dawn, one isn't at his bravest. Walking at the bottom of the sea, only things that were thrown at you travelled faster. We struck a sloppy road, along which ghostly figures passed, with ground sheets flung across their heads and shoulders like hooded monks. At a point where scarlet bundles were being lifted into ambulances, we branched overland. Here and there, and from all directions, infantry were converging their way in a single file to reduce their casualties if a shell burst near them. The landscape, the people, the early morning, everything was stealthy and walked with muted steps. We entered a trench. Poles were scooped out on the side of it, just large enough to shelter a man crouching. Each hole contained a sleeping soldier who looked as dead as the occupant of the catacomb. Some of the holes had been blown in. All you saw of the late occupant was a protruding arm or leg. At, the, at best there was a horrid similarity between the dead and the living. It seemed that the walls of the trenches had been built out of corpses, for one recognised the uniforms of Frenchmen and Huns. They were built out of them, though whether by design or accident it was impossible to tell. We came to a group of men doing some repairing. That part of the trench had evidently been strafed last night. They didn't know where they were or how far it was to the front line. We wandered on, still laying our wire. The the, The colonel of our brigade joined us and we waded in together. So as they get in, I suppose they they wind up... um, um, well, basically, kind of getting absolutely blasted out and destroyed, and kind of at 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 dawn, all these kind of shells coming over. But, but how do you recover from that to actually see? Yeah, like you feel that we've become so desensitized now because we see so much violence and blood and mayhem on kind of on the big screen and kind of in cinemas and even on our kind of nightly soaps. You see horrendous um, images, yeah. but to actually be confronted with it on that very tangible personal level like how do you ever no. c- come out from that and, and lead a do. daily life like, there no was wonder. one Collingsby makes this point he talks about the soldiers who return were kind of maimed that he says it's easy in a way when you have traditions and ideals at your back it's easy to face death calmly mm-hmm. but what's what's much more difficult is to face life calmly yes. a- after yes. this kind of thing um, so this is the kind of and I suppose it, it goes it lends into the, to the, the, the sense of um 
I suppose the the mental problems that are that arose and shell shock and stuff like mm-hmm. that 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 people experienced. Well, in my young days when I was growing up, there were a lot of people, you know, a bit mad. We might shout for that. Yeah. And it was really from the nineteen fourteen war that they'd got a bit of shell shock. I see. Yeah. But I remember one we they used to call him the Mad Max Sweeney. He lived um, again. It was outside the Liberties near Dawkins Barn. Well, at the top of Cork Street. And he used to shout, but again, it was this shell shock. Yeah. Uh, they were fairly numerous. Like Fair, yes. Yeah. Mm. That might explain why they were, why these characters kind yes. of were founded. Yes. Yeah. That's, a, that's interesting, actually. Mm. Um, did the 1914 war, did that, that lived on in the memory of people for quite a long oh, time? Oh, yes, it certainly lived on. Um, did they talk about battles and things, or...? Well, uh, yes, I remember them talking about in the trenches and that. Um, I, can, I can think of my next-door neighbours, and they grew up in Castle Yard um, and then moved out to the South Circle Road. Their father was in the uh, RIC, and they were out in the trenches. And um, they spoke about them. But I mean, he talks about <clears throat> these instances where they, they seem to kind of, in his view, some aspect of God manifests on the battlefield. And he'd see it in these in these moments of bravery, basically, that are kind of horrifically sad. And it's incredible to think of how many people died, um, but also in this one instance, some of the stories that are described, how many aren't described or how many go totally unknown, you know what I mean? How many names aren't written down on any walls or on any grave or, mm-hmm. you know, what, what don't we know? Um I'll give one more example from 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 Coningsby. He's describing the the bravery that people that he saw uh, and that he saw as a manifestation of God on the battlefield, basically. Um, and in one instance, he he describes this young guy. He's no more than a boy who who um, is is waving these flags to code to these guys who are lost to say that they'll be okay, basically. So doing their bit, he says, that covers everything. Here's an example of how God walks am- among us. In one of our attacks on the Psalm, all the observers up forward were uncertain as to what had happened. We didn't know whether our infantry had captured their objective, failed, or gone beyond it. The battlefield, as far as the eye could reach, was a bath of mud. It is extremely easy in the excitement of an offensive, when all landmarks are blotted out, for our storming parties to lose their direction. If this happens, a number of dangers may result. A battalion may find itself up in the air, which means that it has failed to connect with the battalions on its right and left. Its flanks are then exposed to the enemy. It may advance too far and start digging itself in at a point where it was previously arranged that our artillery should place their protective wall of fire. We, being up forward as artillery observers, are the eyes of the army. It is our business to watch for such contingencies, to keep in touch with the situation as it progresses, and to send our information back as quickly as possible. We were peering through our glasses from our point of vantage, when far away in the thickest of the battle smoke we saw a white flag wagging, sending back messages. The flag wagging was repeated desperately. It was evident that no one had replied and probable that no one had picked up the messages. A signaller who was with us read the language for us. A company of infantry had advanced too far. There were most of them wounded, very many of them dead, and they were in danger of being surrounded. They asked for our artillery to place a curtain of fire in front of them and for reinforcements to be sent up. We at once phoned the orders to our our artillery and notified the infantry headquarters of of the division that was holding that front but it was necessary to let those chaps know that we were aware of their predicament, 
they'd hang on if they knew that. Otherwise, without orders, our signaller was getting his flags ready. If he hopped out of the trench onto the parapet, he didn't stand a 50-50 chance. The Hun was familiar with our observation station and strafed it with persistent regularity. The signaller turned to the senior officer present. What will I send them, sir? Tell them their messages have been received and that help is coming. Out the chap scrambled, a flag in either hand. He was nothing but a boy. He ran, crouching like a rabbit, to a hump of mud where his figure would show up against the sky. His flags commenced wagging. Messages received. Help coming. They didn't see him at first. He had to repeat the words. We watched him breathlessly. We knew what would happen. At last it happened. A Hun observer spotted him and flashed the target back to his guns. All about him the mud commenced to leap and bubble. He went on signalling the good word to those stranded men up front. Messages received. Help coming. At last they'd seen him. They were signalling. Okay. It was at that moment that a whiz-bang lifted him off his feet and landed him all of a huddle. His bit. It was what he'd volunteered to do when he came from Canada. The signalled okay in the battle smoke was like a testimony to his character. So this young lad who's just like up signalling flags wagging in the mud and he's just shot and taken out. And even when the fire starts, he doesn't stop. He's still waving to the flag so that the, the other men will know they're okay. You know what I mean? And imagine that they're still in their teens as many of them were. Yeah, it's insane. Totally insane. But the bravery and the, the selflessness, I suppose, that's something that Collingby describes, the sense of um, the, the selflessness as being the form of kind of, um, a kind of heroism that, that ordinary people manifested, basically. And I suppose that fear of death manifesting in the trenches was, was a sort of self, selfishness in a way, that you're, you're frightened for your own you know, useless body, basically, when you shouldn't be like that. And everything is meant to be given over in selfishness mm-hmm. to everyone around you. Yeah. Like that young chap with for his your flags. Kind of exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and we were going to read um, a letter from Tom Kettle from the front, weren't we? Yes, yeah. He, he, he was, um, he was a, a UC... There were some UCD students um, who were there. A huge the list of them yeah. that we actually have in UCD archives, mm. the war list, which is fascinating to read. And again, you can view this... Um, when you come to visit, if, if you were interested. But Tom Kettle went to fight on the front and he would have corresponded regularly with his wife. And we have two letters that form part of the exhibition Johnny mentioned at the, kind of at the outset that um, really sheds a light, I think, on a, on a very personal relationship, but also on Tom's experience at the front. And he was a beautiful writer. But the first one I'm going to choose is, it's humorous, in, in a sense, but it just shows um, his creativity, but another aspect of the war, that while you have a lot of those traits that Johnny would have touched on, the horror and the bloodshed and the violence, you've got the mud, the rain, but also the rats and mm. the vermin were another huge, huge part of trench life, which you come across in the literature um, again and again, and you'll see this kind of beautifully rendered by Tom in quite a humorous form. So I'll read this. This is... Um, a letter from Kettle to J.J. O'Mara um, on the 4th of August 1916 and then we'll follow it up with one of his letters to his wife. So this is Tom Kettle on the 4th of August 1916. I came from Westland Row practically direct to the front line and have been there ever since. Anybody who tells you that he likes it may be fit to sign an affidavit but the truth is not in him. Chalk, lime, condensed milk, diabolical torturings of the air with unimaginable noises and blood, too much of it, are so far my main experience. We sleep on two sandbags and four ammunition boxes each, 
and the accompaniments, the bedfellows, the neighbours of sleepless, sleepless nights. Like France, I am an invaded country. That's an amazing line, isn't mm. it? Like France, I am an invaded country. The Royal Wartenberg Machine Gun Corps of Mosquitoes cooperate in a vigorous offensive with the Sicilian Lice and the 3rd Division of Frankfurt Ants, while the Prussian Rat Guards and the Imperial Austrian Mouse Rangers, lent for the occasion, distinguish themselves by sporadic raids. I hear one of my colleagues chanting softly to himself a composition of mine. Take me from the din of conflict to some green and quiet shore, where the pip squeaks pip nor squeak not, nor the hitchy heavies roar. And that is from the collection known as the Papers of Tom Kettle in UCD Archives. And what a vivid image that paints of kind of the squalid or the squalid conditions mm. that these men would have been forced to live in. And so many of the photographs I saw as well, you just see them knee deep in water and mud. Oh, it's, yeah. And yeah. you know what I'm like, Johnny. I like a bit of comfort, a bit of heat. <laughs> Can you imagine, like when your feet are constantly sodden and mm. soaking, and you just you never have warmth, you never have any element of comfort, you have no sleep for days on end, your food is limited. If it's there, yeah. If no it's water. there at all. Yeah. And I just think, oh, like we, we just cannot even fathom it. You can it. imagine then the importance of someone who had kind of pluck and good cheer in the midst of all that to be oh, humorous yes. and to... You wouldn't want me glass half empty. <laughs> Honest to God, you know I, I mean? think morale would have been fundamental. Oh, yeah. if you would need someone who was there cheering you on yeah. and, and yeah. just keeping the, the um, spirits up. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, there is reminding me, just with the rats, we have, we have a piece... So, yeah, this, this is a recording that we have from uh, July 1970. This is recorded by Michael J. Murphy in Drumahair, County Leitrim. And he's speaking with James Mitchell. And Mitchell here talks about experiencing a gas shelling, uh, which he cured. But he, he, just, he just got the mask on as it was coming in, but he, he got a smell of it or a touch of it or whatever. And he drinks a quart of water. But he also describes the, the rats um, in the trenches and how they were in addition to, to the soldiers. Oh, uh, I seen uh, this is the truth, the real truth, and God's truth. The, the Germans used to, they built big dugouts, and the walls was three yards thick with wrought iron in them. Yes. And there was a big roof as deep, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And there was an awful battle. He was overtaking oh, all, and, and uh, we were retreating. There was an officer and another signal, a wireless operator with me. <laughs> And the shells, it was the, the ground was boiling in front of us with shells, constant, like hailstones down. And we weren't in this old trench, but this dug out. I stepped into it, and the officer came in, and the other. And it's true as I'm here. The next thing, we were covered with dust and no roof. What the noise, you know. It fell a big shell just at the end of it, and it blew the whole roof off down the field. Yeah. And we were standing there, and all of a second there was a gas shell, you know, they gave it like a big spit, yeah. into the ground in front. And while we were putting on, I shouted, yes! And while we were putting on the mask, there was a certain amount in it. I got the whiff of it. Yeah. And the other two was as bad. We got out anyway and was making on down through the shells. And the officer says, I got the gas. He says, I feel it burning me, so do I, sir, says I. And I had a water bottle, if uh, you always bring a water bottle, a quart of water. Yes. And I was that much a burning with it, didn't I take out the bottle? And drank, and I drank the whole quart. It gave me such ears. And I told them, and they drank it. We were better of it. Oh, yeah. Oh. 
It cleared it out of the system. It cleared it now over it is, and it, it was the very same as if so at a coal. Is that right? Oh, why? It filled just from here. Oh, burning down, you couldn't bear it. Yes. Like a coal burning you. Yes. That's what the gas is. Mm. But that was the only touch of whatever I got. Ah. And you know what used to be a great addition to us? The rats. The rats the were rats. an addition to you. So they wouldn't go near a rat. Eh? He wouldn't kill the rats if they were there. No one? No. Oh, why was that? He used to, when the wind would be favoured, he put over the gas. And before every human being you come near, they'll find anything of it. The rats were running for, and squealing. And they nearly run up your, your trousers. And oh, that was it, a fight. <laughs> put on the mask. Uh huh. That's right. Aye. Now you'd hear the rats and the run blind around you and squealing, making for holes. They got the gas before the human being. No, no. But even in the trenches now, I think the rats must have been frightened, weren't they? They were. They were. They used to be eating dead bodies. Oh, they? And they was up walking. And with the old grass and weeds and everything. And all of a sudden, You'd feel your feet going down, the ribs cracking. Oh dear. You'd be dead there and no one to bury. Oh, I know. Nah. Oh, no war. So, that's, um, yeah, James Mitchell with, with Michael J. Murphy. There's actually a poem people should look up if they're interested. It's called Grass by Carl Sandberg, and it just touches on that very idea of the grass growing over the bodies mm. and that people don't realise until they walk. And it's, it's horrendous. That's, as he described, the ribs cracking. Yeah. Do you have it there? Um, I do. It's um, it's quite a short one, but um, it, or it reads as, Pile the bodies high at Austerlitz and Waterloo. Shovel them under and let me work. I am the grass. I cover all. And pile them high at Gettysburg and pile them high at Eaps and Verdon. Shovel them under and let me work. Two years, ten years, and passengers ask the conductor, What place is this? Where are we now? I am the grass. Let mm. me work. It's awful. It's just this idea of walking on bodies and not mm. knowing that you that you are. It's awful, awful. But um, and to kind of continue on that, we were just saying, and um, people will have perhaps heard of um, Dolce e Decorame by Wilfred Owen, but gassing was a horrendous, I suppose, element of the war for the first time. And here, Wilfred Owen writes, "Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time." But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. And you do see a lot of um, descriptions of of the effects of gas. And like at first, when I read, um, I did a bit of research earlier on in the year about. Um, was family history research and when you discover that someone has been gassed mm. you don't actually I didn't know what gassing actually meant what happens but um, it's a horrendous way to die mm. and so many were um, inflicted with that end where did that come up in family research? Um, remember when we were doing we said we'd look into our families and yeah. who'd fought in the war yeah, yeah. yeah so one of them um, kind of one of the grand uncles in our family yeah mm. that would have been and how he, he went did he experience gassing? Is apparently that's so him. oh yes we died yeah yeah, that was one of his military records. Oh, yeah. yeah, horrendous. Yeah. And like again, you can read the language and you don't understand it mm. until you can. Kind of what go. it entails. Yeah, yeah, awful. Um, 
there's a piece to, to go to a piece one of the, the books the stands at the, at the monsters at a true it might be pronounced that incorrectly but um this is a, the, the monster fusiliers this battalion uh, and there's a, this this book is in special collections actually you can get the text online as well but it describes the monster fusiliers and the, i want to read this just for the description of the the it's it's echoed by kind of ernst younger as well in a similar description but it, the night is described this warfare at night and how eerie and supernatural and bizarre it is mm-hmm. but the feeling then in when the dawn breaks and you get to see what craziness has occurred throughout the night because you haven't been able to see anything mm-hmm. and just the, the, the vision that then that meets a person but these are the monster fusiliers uh, many of whom were, were killed and it's there it's it's december at this stage and um the description goes on as follows all the night of the 21st the monsters waited and all of the night of the 21st it rained and snowed and stormed the pitch darkness of a night of waiting is a memorable experience, even when there are so even when there are many such to record. There is the curious feeling of loneliness common to all humans out in the night. The bright smoke of fires over the land behind the parapets of the German trenches made will of the wisp columns of misty light. Sometimes a star shell shot up, lighting the place like day, and sometimes the crack of a rifle tore the dark and spattered in the mud of the trench. Life and death come much closer in the night than they do in the daytime and the whole almost intolerable mystery of war is intensified a thousandfold. Very slowly the sullen dawn broke as if unwilling to reveal the sights that night closed over, and the sodden fields and the barns and farmsteads stood out blackly against the grey. The green and yellowish water lying over the flats was frozen, and the dead were very visible, lying in pathetic heaps amid the refuse of a thousand unexpected things. The weary desolation of dawn over French Flanders passes all description i mean the kind of the um yeah i suppose that just the the strange kind of lunar landscape that that appears basically after these these battles um and then the the uh, the i suppose the madness that ensues as well um uh or younger talks about that the, the shelling that carries on to such an extent that one of the ncos and just goes mad after about an hour was that it's it's so intense that he just that's what kind of strikes me in the literature this continuous noise and din yeah and i'm bad enough in ucd where there's constant activity and noise and um, where you just want a quiet space students. <laughs> university would be lovely um but it is it's just this constant noise there's no corner to call your own mm. there's no time out there's no dark room to go and have a rest and it's just this constant um din and mm-hmm. noise and just it's this awful music of war and mm. um, one one of the writers discusses kind of the shells and the artillery and the bombardment of bombs and um, the kind of the shouting of men just this constant i i can i see how it would impact mentally yeah. on anyone i'll get well, you know, i'll read that out shortly after this bit with with younger he describes exactly that mm-hmm. uh, this guy has been a kind of boiling cauldron and you have to shout one word at a time to be understood to the person next to you and that like and it just goes on for hours but um this is more about, about the, the monster fusiliers this is kind of a final attack of theirs and just again another description to, to go through just to, to see what it was like when they were there and um, the men swarmed over the parapets and raced across the fields carrying their heavy equipment and following their officers over the shell scarred churned up earth strands of barbed wire beset their way and the ground was broken by great shell holes before them from the german trenches the machine guns hammered out their deadly message of welcome and the men went gamely on, most splendidly led by their officers. Major Thompson, second in command, fell across the first German trench, but would not permit himself to be removed. 
continuing to issue orders from where he lay. He was wounded again, the second wound proving fatal. He met his death unvanquished and unappalled, and his, and his name remains bound in with the great story of the regiment. Colonel Bel- Bent fell in the earlier part of the charge, desperately wounded. Major Day was killed a little later, showing the greatest gallantry, and Captain Hugh O'Brien, a young Irish officer beloved by his men, and who had proved in the South African War to possess unusual dash and coolness, fell as he shouted to his company, Get a bit of your own back, boys. Not twenty yards from where Captain O'Brien fell, Captain Durand met his death. He had joined the 3rd Battalion Royal Munster Fusiliers in 1906, having served through the campaigns in the Rhodesian Horse. He died most nobly, leading at the extreme point of the advance made by C Company under fierce and flating fire. The sorrow and the heroism of such death is touched by the great enduring light of glory. Men fell on the right and left, and again and again they rallied and stumbled over the broken ground, holding steadily on under wail of tearing shrapnel, and at last the monsters reached their goal, the given point, and in the fierce counter-attack they did not lose an inch of what they had taken. I mean, these descriptions, like they're, they're kind of... They're, this is the thing when you look at some of it, there's this dug-in fighting for weeks and weeks, and the front is just moving back and forth a couple of metres. It's this kind of trench warfare that's just... Um, intractable and kind of going nowhere and and yet i think it's coningsby describes entire populations of cities he sees just going up over the top and disappearing and then they just do it again and they do it again and the, and the, the orders come in for more campaigns and men to just go up over the top and they keep doing it and they keep disappearing and then there's just these pockmarked lunar landscape shell holes with craters with arms and legs and heads sticking out of them and you're digging trenches but the mud is just bodies you know it's like and it just goes on and on and on they did that for for so long it's insane it's one of them what is it? There was a line I read in Henry Glassy where he said that there's no such thing as war now, only a battle of irrationalities. Mm. And um, that's what it really does strike me about, well, any war. It is just you know, the waste of life for yeah. questionable reasons, really. And like you said, just <coughs> this generation, you know, city after city, being sent over the top. Yeah. I mean, you can see that the, the, the manipulation, I mean, that's what finish finishes something with Ezra Pounds later, but the manipulation, I suppose, of, of uh, yeah, those in power that send everyone off to war. Mm-hmm. And yet, then you have someone like Coningsby who say that he's not trying to glorify it, but you'd have to say that there are those who haven't gone would say thank God for the war, for kind of what it gave them of themselves and what it mm-hmm. showed them, or, or removing their own egoism and removing and forging them anew. Like you were saying, you know, you kind of, to be reborn and remade in this, in, in another uh I suppose orientation or something like that essentially you know to be kind of fixed to a different star or something after after this process basically yeah but it must be cost. very hard to come back even reading um kind of oh, yeah. britain she she went on to be a great pacifist and kind of spoke hmm. um of continuously across the country and across the world as part of the un um about the need for peace and cooperation and kind of communication but um she was so disheartened sometimes by what she saw after the war about how statesmen kind of conducted themselves perhaps those who had not fought even um mm. just their level of misunderstanding about what had been fought for and what mm. had been lost and seeing them kind of i suppose kind of um having the same failures again and kind of going through old patterns that led to the war and just seeing the same mistakes being made and having learned nothing from history. She mm. was very disheartened by that and I think we can see that still today. Of course. You know. Um will I go to look at at um or we'll go to the interview with Kate actually to talk about the, the exhibition that people can, can look at, the Google Arts and Culture exhibition. Yes. And Kate Manning is given us the, the she's the, the, the head archivist in the principal archivist in U C D archives. 
um, and I sat down with her just to discuss the, the exhibition and some of the material from the heritage collection. So it's a shared exhibition between the folklore collection here, special collections in UCD and UCD archives. So kind of across University College Dublin to look at who, who are those who were involved, who partook in the war, and then what are the differing collections that we have basically. So here's here I'm chatting to Kate. I'm here with Kate Manning, who's the principal archivist in UCD archives. And thanks for being in for your, your time. You're welcome. And um, maybe first for the benefit of anyone listening who's not aware of UCD archives, what sort of collections overall? Um, well, I suppose we have three main collecting areas. So we collect the archives of the university itself. Um, we collect papers to do the foundation and development of the modern Irish state. And uh, we also curate um, collections of the Franciscans in Ireland. Hmm. And then for, for Armistice, there's any particular ways to, set, to, to mark it or, or mark Ireland's involvement in it? Yeah, we've been working with our colleagues in folklore and special collections on an exhibition, um, uh, which will be in the Google Arts uh, platform, using material from our collections uh, across the, the three units to um, demonstrate Ireland's involvement and examine Ireland's involvement in, mm. during the war. Yeah, in, in the totality of the war, from the, the beginning right through to the armistice and then the aftermath. And you mentioned, yesterday you mentioned um, Michael, Michael McQuite. Michael McQuite, yeah, 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 yeah a fascinating man. Yeah. He was uh, born in 1883 in Cork. Um, he did study to be a teacher in Denmark, but other than that had no... Um, no university education, mm. um, but he uh, fought in Bulgaria in the First Balkan War in 1912, and then he joined the French Foreign Legion in 1913, mm. and he fought uh, in the in World War One then as a member of the French Foreign Legion. He was awarded the Croix de Guerre three times um, for his. Um, yeah, for his valour in combat. Mm. And actually this year he was, uh, recently in the summer, he was uh, honoured by uh, the French embassy for his services to mm. France. Amazing. Yeah, um, so he, he was an, a, an astonishing person. And after the war he became, he returned to kind of the fledgling Doyle era in the beginnings of the Free State and um, became... Uh, one of Ireland's uh, most senior diplomats. He retired in 1950. Yeah, 1950, uh, after 30 years' service oh, as, right. a, as a yeah. diplomat. And is there many recollections of his experiences kind of in, in the war? Or his, um, there, diaries or? In his papers, it's not extensive, but he has some um, recollections in a notebook and he has a wonderful account that's in the exhibition of his um, experiences at the front in France um, and it's it's pretty despairing really? um, yeah. yeah and uh, he I mean he's a wonderful writer mm. um, and the fact that these are in his papers uh, so they were maybe it was just a kind of letter he wrote to himself or notes that he wrote to himself yeah. but it, it's pretty ex ex extensive two pages of writing mm. um, and uh, where he, he kind of doubts uh, the purpose of all of this and what has what has he achieved um, mm. thus far in his life if, if everything ends now it's 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 a wonderful piece of writing and was he at the was he present at the Somme or was he what uh, this was at the front no I'm not sure I'd have to check that mm. I don't know yeah mm. yeah uh, but he survived anyway and he, he survived out, yeah. Uh, yeah. He survived and went on to have a very distinguished career. So he was ambassador, 
or he served uh, um, in America and in Rome. Um, and he was in Rome in the 1930s. So uh, he was dealing with the fascist Italian government then mm. and, and I suppose Ireland is a neutral country. Mm-hmm. Um, he paid particular concern to um, Irish citizens who were there at the time, um, either trying to get them out or protecting them while they were there. Mm. And are there any other figures or individuals kind of who, who in their collections here that kind of stand out for the, their... For their war. The, the materials that you've seen, yeah. Yeah, um, yes, there's a wonderful collection of letters of Michael Moynihan. Mm, yeah, um, I remember, so yeah, yeah. Him, yeah. So he was a student here. Um, he didn't graduate. He left uh, to go... He took the civil service exams and went to the UK. Um, and then he joined the civil service rifles. Hmm. Um, so he had intended initially to serve uh, uh, on the home front but then uh, against his mother's objections he, he joined up and went to um, went to France mm. for at least two years and he uh, was killed in the summer of 1918 so four or five months before the armistice yeah. it was very sad yeah and then you were showing me as well that there's we have a way to find out were those all UCD um, UCD connections to the, the on the on the exhibition you can see where you can see yes uh, Dr Connor Mulver from the School of History he um, has done a lot of research uh, using the UCD Roll of Honor um, mm. and the War List as his base and then doing further research to identify uh, where uh, all the are all the UCD students and staff. Um, uh, those who were killed where they're buried across mm. and they, I mean it's across Europe through as far as um, you know, Palestine and the, in the mm. Middle East it's, it's, it's really amazing um, I think a lot of the students turned out to be members of the Royal Medical Corps uh, less staff and students uh, and graduates um, so uh, it's, it's interesting to see how far they, they went they went yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's the, from the exhibition you'll be able to click in to the map and then click on the individual uh, points and see where each individual is buried. Yeah. And when will it be available or how can people go to find out? Um, it's going to be launched on the 9th of November um, mm. and it's part of UCD's um, formal com- um, commemorations of the armistice. And there will be various links on our own websites and we'll tweet about it and so will our colleagues. Um, so there will be plenty of ways to find out where it is. And where do people find more about UCD archives in general? Is there uh, our website is the best place to go. It's yeah. the first port of call, uh, www.ucd.ie forward slash archives. Damn, grand. Thanks, William. Okay. Time, Cheers. <laughs> thanks, Johnny. Great. That's our thanks to Kate as well for sharing her time with us. Absolutely. Um, she mentioned Tom Kettle there. Mm. And you have a letter from, from Tom just before, shortly before his death. Yes, this is Tom, who we mentioned earlier in the podcast, and this is him writing to his wife, Mary. And it's a letter from the 3rd of September, 1916. And he writes, My dearest wife, the long expected is now close at hand. I was at Mass and Communion this morning at six. The camp is broken up and the column is about to move. It is no longer indiscreet to say that we are to take part in one of the biggest attacks of the war. Many will not come back. Should that be God's design for me, you will not receive this letter until afterwards. I want to thank you for the love and kindness you spent and all but wasted on me. There was never in all the world a dearer woman or a more perfect wife and adorable mother. And that is, again, from the papers of Tom Kettle. And things like that break my heart Mm -hmm. because, unfortunately, Tom didn't come back. And then you realise that it's a, a wife and a child and a family kind of irrevocably changed um, Mm. at home 
whose life will never be the same again. And I think those are the kind of the forgotten stories sometimes. That Uncounted. That you, don't you don't count those in, in, the, in the figures yeah. of the dead. Are the, they not the, casualties the as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Did you have a piece from, from um, Vera Britton to describe the, the from the perspective of the women waiting mm. for these men? Or? Yeah, I did. This is a book I read during the summer and it's funny because I think certain books come to you in life when, you, when you're ready for them. And this is Vera Britton, who many of you will probably be familiar with the film The Testament of Youth, which came out a few years ago with um, Alicia Vikander, who has the unfortunate claim that she's married to my husband, which is rather... Who's that? Michael Fassbender. Oh, I see. Well, we'll, 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 she's clearly delusional. It's, we'll remedy that. But um, it was a beautiful film. It's based on the book, um, the memoir of Vera Britton, who was a VAD nurse um, during the war, but she lost her brother... Edward, she lost her fiance Roland, and she lost two of her best friends, Victor and Joffrey. And Testament of Youth is her memoir of the period as well as the years following the war. And it's just exquisite as a book to read. It breaks your heart. I was on the bus on numerous occasions with tears in my eyes, probably people thinking, What's wrong today? Mm-hmm. But you actually kind of get to the stage where you're following the course of the war with her as she kind of receives mm-hmm. these letters from Edward and Roland and her career as a nurse after she leaves university because she feels that she can no longer justify being in education while all of this is being um, sacrificed on her behalf so she becomes a nurse and travels to the front um, and and a number of um, areas and a number of countries really just to feel close to her brother and her fiance and her friends and to feel like she's somehow contributing. But her writing is exquisite and although she's kind of writing from a retrospective point of view it, it gives you an insight into, I suppose, the, the female experience. And what really strikes me is the almost the monotony of life while you wait and just this sense mm. of limbo, like her life stopped the day war was declared, the day um, her brother and Roland went to war. And it's this waiting and not knowing if it, you're going to be waiting for a month, not knowing if the war is going to last for years, not knowing if these um, loved ones are coming back and that every ring of a doorbell or kind of um, ring of a phone is going to bring bad news and it's just this constant fear and sense of dread that she must have lived with but I have a section here that um, I'll read I think it kind of conveys it really well so but do do read it if it's something that you're interested in because it's it's never a wasted experience reading a book like this those who are old and think this war so terrible do not know what it means to us who are young I soliloquized angrily When I think how suddenly, instantly, a chance bullet may put an end to that brilliant life, may cut it off in its youth and mighty promise, faith in the increasing purpose of the ages grows dim. The fight around Hill 60, which was gradually developing, assisted by the unfamiliar horror of gas attacks into the Second Battle of Ypres, did nothing to restore my faith in the benevolent intentions of Providence. With that Easter vacation began the wearing anxiety of waiting for letters which for me was to last with only brief intervals for more than three years and which, I think, made all non-combatants feel more distracted than anything else in the war. Even when the letters came, they were four days old and the writers since sending them had had time to die over and over again. My diary, with its long drawn out record of days upon days of miserable speculation, still gives a melancholy impression of that nerve wracking suspense. Morning, it observes, creeps on into afternoon and afternoon passes into evening, while I go from one occupation to another in apparent unconcern, but all the time this gnawing anxiety beneath it all. 
ordinary household sounds become a torment. The clock, marking off each hour of dread, struck into the immobility of tension with the shattering effect of a thunderclap. Every ring at the door suggested a telegram, every telephone call a long-distance message giving bad news. With some of us, the effect of this prolonged apprehension still lingers on. Even now, I cannot work comfortably in a room from which it is possible to hear the front doorbell. I dare not think too vividly of him just now, I wrote one black evening after, after several days without a letter. I can scarcely bear to look at the photograph taken at Uppingham. I've been trying to picture to myself what I should feel if I heard he was dead. It would be impossible to realise. Life would seem so utterly empty and purposeless without him that it is almost inconceivable. I only know that such an anguish would never be conquered in a life of scholastic endeavour. Never among those indifferent, unperceiving college women for the majority of whom war and love and grief might not exist. The ability to endure these things would come back in time, but only after some drastic change. To this constant anxiety for Roland's life was added, as the end of the fighting moved even or ever further into an incalculable future, a new fear that the war would come between us, as indeed with time the war always did, putting a barrier of indescribable experience between men and the women they loved, thrusting horror deeper and deeper inward, linking the dread of spiritual death to the apprehension of physical disaster. Quite early I realised this possibility of a permanent impediment to understanding. Sometimes, I wrote, I have feared that even if he gets through, what he has experienced out there may change his ideas and tastes utterly. Mm. And like, you just have moments in this book where she, your heart just stops with the, kind of the grace that she writes with. Mm. Um, and unfortunately then she gets the story that Roland um, is killed in action and then later her brother and to lose four people that you love in such a short space of time, you just wonder, how do you ever recover from that? But she is such, again, she is every bit a hero as the men were, because it's this quiet, heroic, or, um, heroic nature that mm-hmm. is exemplified on the home front as well mm. by the women and the kind of older people who, who couldn't um, contribute in, in kind of military terms, mm. but that... <clears throat> They persevered and they kind of they kept the home fires burning as the saying goes and they were every bit as resilient and as brave i think yeah and um, so yeah it's a book that i would i would really highly recommend and she comes out of it still with fortitude and and hope which i think says more about the woman than mm. than i possibly could there's um actually for the segue of all the title segues there's a piece here, John McCormack recording, Keep the Home Fires Burning. Oh. These patriotic songs that were kind of popular at the time mm. that you can imagine being sung in the trenches and the likes of its language, Tipperary, the letter writing home to your loved ones and mm. so on. But um, we'll play that just to give us, I suppose, a sense of the time, basically.
John McCormick and keep the home fires burning which is one of the kind of I suppose just to give people a sense of some of the the songs and music that would have, people would have had to keep their spirits it's a, it's a huge sides, part of the folklore and um, the songs that people would have had to mm. the language they would have used we'll mm-hmm. come to this shortly mm-hmm. but it, again it was a huge part of the folklore of war yeah these kind of songs absolutely did you have another piece of Vera Vera's um, that you I, wanted to go through um, I just wanted to finish off but this is the poem this is one really kind of broke my heart but um Again, kind of, as we were saying about songs, a great amount of poetry grew out of the war as well, as we kind mm. of touched upon earlier. You've got the Wilfred Owens and the Robert Graves, the W.B. Yeats, and, and Vera Britton as well was um, became known as a great writer. But she has one here in her book by May Wedderburn Cannon. And this one, this one really broke me. I quite literally did cry with this one. But um, she uses it as, a, I suppose, it, it, she, it kind of comes to her as something to read when she hears that that Roland has just been killed. Did she write this, sorry? No, sorry, this is May Weatherburn Cannon. Oh, okay, but sorry. it's one that she reads on the night that he, she hears that he's um, been killed um, on December 23rd, which is all the more yeah. cruel as Christmas approaches. And she reads, When the vision dies in the dust of the marketplace, when the light is dim, when you lift up your eyes and cannot behold his face, when your heart is far from him, know this is your war. In this loneliest hour you ride down the roads he knew, Though he comes no more at night, he will kneel, kneel at your side for comfort to dream with you. Mm. And um, I think that's it's beautiful, but it's just heartbreaking because mm. for all you hear about the kind of the factual accounts, it, it, the reality is that loved ones were lost and, and did not come home. You imagine even the sort of waking up in, in bewildered in some ditch in Belgium as opposed to being waking up at home with your, mm. your wife or something you know what I mean it's, it's like it's inconceivable absolutely um, yeah good grief um, to look at I suppose but do you know when you kind of said that um, yeah. good grief I know it's it's a very hard um, podcast I suppose it might be a bit heavier than what we're used to when we're oh, used to rambling along but um, one of the things that always struck me about Vera is that she said you always must talk about this we must bring the story oh, to the yeah. next generation and mm. to the next generation. Like we must never forget. That's mm-hmm. the whole thing. We must remember them. So I think doing things like this for us is it's part extremely of that. important. Yeah, yeah. to recognise the sacrifice that people made, and also it's like you said, even if it's the women or the elderly people at home, or if it's the men going over the top, or whatever, do you remember them? And even the, the fact that those whose names aren't inscribed on walls, whose names aren't written down on books, or who aren't or aren't um, uh, kind of. Yeah, spoken of in, in the corridors of power or whatever but to recognise or just to yeah to stop and remember and um, and to learn from it Jeez, certainly like, certainly know. yeah um, to take to look at things from from another perspective which is important as that I think um, if some another memoir a fantastic bloody book in the same sense of Fear of Britain's very very different in its tone um, but a memoir of I suppose a very distinguished soldier who um, received great many kind of accolades and honours in the First World War, and that's Ernst Junger, a German soldier. Uh, and his book, this is, I'm going to read just through an excerpt of the book Storm of Steel, which is just incredible, really. Um, and his descriptions of the battles and of the front, as I was describing earlier, are kind of, they're not that they're 
emotionless but there's no sentimentalizing about it there's no um moralizing about how, how awful this is they're just these kind of clean descriptions of the 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 horror of wars that manifest with a sort of a sort of um what would you call it like a weird a sort of indifference to the whole, to the whole thing in a way um so like tom kettle i think he was killed at i think he was killed at the psalm I, th- I think that this this battle and uh, that that younger this is at, at Guillemon he's describing I think is around the same time the same kind of um, at, at the same same period in the war basically but from another perspective um, there's just a piece here where it basically uh, Ernst Junger's kind of his his company are going to the town of, of Combe which is, has just been destroyed and then from there they're going to the front and he meets somebody coming back um, another kind of soldier coming back and he speaks to him and asks him what's it like there so he says here this is from storm of steel a man in a steel helmet reported to me as a guide to conduct my platoon to the renowned combat for the first time we were to be in reserve sitting with him at the side of the road i asked him naturally enough what it was like in the line in reply i heard a monotonous tale of crouching all day in shell holes with no one on either flank and no trenches communicating with the rear of unceasing attacks of dead bodies littering the ground, of maddening thirst, of wounded and dying, and of a lot besides. The face, half framed by the steel rim of the helmet, was unmoved. The voice, accompanied by the sound of battle, droned on, and the impression they made on me was one of of unearthly solemnity. One could see that the man had been through horror to the limit of despair, and there had learned to despise it. Nothing was left but supreme and superhuman indifference. So, I suppose this is kind of Ernst's or, or this is Junger's description of, of the yeah the soldier who's who's returned from the front. They march on then to this town Combe, which is just shot to bits, it's destroyed, and they walk around the square. He goes into this house and sees all the kind of I suppose all all of the the parts of a person's life just in this crazy array, just heaped up in the floor. All this kind of you know, and you're you're wandering around in this person's house. Um, but he then kind of walks around the town, I suppose. In the, in the morning, and he, decide, he's, he describes here, this is to, from the book again, After breakfast, I went out to have a look round. Heavy artillery had turned a peaceful little billeting town into a scene of desolation in the course of a day or two. Whole houses had been flattened by single direct hits or blown up, so that the interiors of the rooms hung over the chaos like the scenes on a stage. A sickly scent of dead bodies rose from many of the ruins, for many civilians had been caught in the bombardment and buried beneath the wreckage of their homes. A little girl lay dead in the pool of blood on the threshold of one of the doorways. Um, so he goes into one of the houses and, and, and looks out. And he says, The view through the broken windows showed the square utterly deserted and ploughed up by the shells, which had strewn it with the branches of the limes. The artillery fire that had ranged round the place with a ceasing, without ceasing deepened the gloom of this appalling picture. Now and then, the gigantic crash of a 38-centimetre shell dominated the tumult whereupon a hail of splinters swept through the swept through combles, clattering through the branches of the trees or striking on the walls of the few houses that were left still standing and bringing down the slates from the roofs. In the course of the afternoon, the firing increased to such a degree that single explosions were no longer audible. This is where the sound of the whole thing just gets goes to another level. And this is the English kind of shelling them, so you have the other perspective of what, what it was like. There was nothing but one terrific tornado of noise. From seven onwards, the square and the houses round were shelled at intervals of half a minute with 15 centimetre shells. There were many duds among them, which all the same made the houses rock. We sat all this while in our cellar, round a table, on armchairs covered in silk, with our heads propped on our hands, and counted the seconds between the explosions. 
our jests became less frequent, till at last the foolhardy of us fell silent, and at eight o'clock two direct hits brought down the next house. From nine to ten the shelling was frantic, the earth rocked and the sky boiled like a gigantic cauldron. Hundreds of heavy batteries were concentrated on and around Combe. Innumerable shells came howling and hurtling over us. Thick smoke, ominously lit up by, by varay lights, those are uh, flares, white and red kind of flares that were fired, veiled everything. Head and ears ached violently, and we could only make ourselves understood by shouting a word at a time. The power of logical thought and the force of gravity seemed alike to be suspended. One had the sense of something as unescapable and as unconditionally fated as a catastrophe of nature. An NCO of number three platoon went mad. At ten, this carnival of hell gradually calmed down and passed into steady drum fire. It was still certainly impossible to distinguish one shell from another. So, Can I jump in there before? Please, yeah. um, because we spoke about this yesterday. Um, I came across a recording on one of the RTE arena documentaries. They did a three-part mm. series on the art of that or the, it was called the art of war i believe mm. but it basically um touched on the artistic response to war so the poems and the music that um came, came out of it but one of them touched on marionetti i believe the italian yeah. um who previously to the war had actually composed this it was something like mouth music if that's the correct term i'm not sure mm. what it is but where you make the the sounds with your mouth and he had actually imagined what war would sound like and this was in 1909 or thereabouts before world war one had happened but just through the gift of um voice he recreated all the the rolling of the, the shrapnel and the mm. the dropping of the bombs and the this kind of the rolling r's of the shelling Ammutinamento di 500 echi per azzannarlo, sminuzzarlo, sparpagliarlo all'infinito. Nel centro di quei pompum, spiaccicati a ampiezza 50 km quadrati, balzare scoppi tagli pugni, batteria tirografica, violenza feroce, regolarità. Questo basso grave, scandali strani, folli agitatissimi, acuti della battaglia, furia, affanno, orecchi, occhi, narici, aperti, che gioia, vedere, udire, fiutare, tutto, taratatà delle mitragliatrici, strigliare per di fiato, sottomorsi, schiaffi, pit-pac-puntum, pit-pac-puntum, pitarie, salti, 200 metri, fucileria. Giù, giù, in fondo all'orchestra, stagni di guazzare, buoi, bufali, pungoli, carri, flick-pac, zing-zing, shak-hak, illeri, nitriti, tre battaglioni bulgari in marcia, and in this little section he just recreates the complete sound of war that would manifest in world war one and before he even knew what it would sound like in a way mm. and it, it's horrendous um to imagine that this is what you're going to be listening to mm. constantly and no wonder that kind of sensible thought went out the window indeed um it is nowhere to be found at the stage where the, this is younger again when they go to the they've, they've kind of made it they leave that place of Comland the, the, the cellar and they have to march to the actual front which even the place where they were everyone's going mad and the sky's boiling like a cauldron isn't the front itself but now he describes that they're there and he says at last we reached the front line it was held by men cowering close in the shell holes and their dead voices trembled with joy when they heard that we were the relief a Bavarian sergeant major briefly handed over the sector and the Varey light pistol, this is a flare gun. My platoon front formed the right wing of the position held by the regiment. 
It consisted of a shallow sunken road which had been pounded by shells. It was a few hundred metres left of Guillemot and a rather shorter distant right of, of Bois de Throne. We were parted from the troops on our right, the 76th Regiment of Infantry, by a space about 500 metres wide. This space was shelled so violently that no troops could maintain themselves there. The Bavarian Sergeant Major had vanished of a sudden, and I stood alone, the Varade light pistol in my hand, in the midst of an uncanny sea of shell holes over which lay a white mist whose swathes gave it an even more oppressive and mysterious appearance. A persistent, unpleasant smell came from behind. I was left in no doubt that it came from a gigantic corpse far gone in decay. As I had no idea how far off the enemy were, I warned my men to be ready for, for the worst. We all remained on guard. I spent the night with my Batman and two orderlies in a hole perhaps one yard square and one yard deep. Batman is like his, uh, a servant of sorts. When, dawn when day dawned, we were astonished to see, by degrees, what a sight surrounded us. This is like, it was written um, in, in the story mm. of the monsters as well. The sunken road now appeared as nothing but a series of enormous shell holes filled with pieces of uniform, weapons and dead bodies. The ground all around, as far as the eye could see, was ploughed by shells. You could search in vain for one wretched blade of grass. This churned up battlefield was ghastly. Among the living lay the dead. As we dug ourselves in, we found them in layers stacked one on top of the other. One company after another had been shoved into the drum fire and steadily annihilated. The corpses were covered with the masses of soil turned up by the shells, and the next company advanced in the place of the fallen. The sunken road and the ground behind was full of German dead, the ground in front of English. Arms, legs and heads stuck out stark above the lips of the craters. In front of our miserable defences there were torn off limbs and corpses over many of which cloaks and ground sheets had been thrown to hide the fixed stare of their distorted features. In spite of the heat, no one thought for a moment of covering them with soil. So this is the kind of, I suppose, the the sights and Good. smells and sounds that they that they met, that they meet. You don't actually think of the smell, do you? No, which they which quite a few of them tend to refer to as well. The, the, um, at, at the end, I suppose, and even in, you were talking about Marinetti and the the, the Italian futurists and authors who who were talking about mechanization and. Um, and and the idea of mechanization in war and so on. Younger talks about that as well at the end of this chapter, where he talks about something that Claire that you mentioned earlier about about chivalry kind of bidding its final farewell. Oh, dead and gone, Johnny, um, dead and gone. <laughs> well, this section he describes this kind of this uh, this mechanized kind of landscape basically, and it's it's an interesting it's, it's worth it's worth uh, covering I think. Um, he says one scene the landscape is an unforgettable one. In this neighbourhood of villages, meadows, woods and fields, there was literally not a bush or tiniest blade of grass to be seen. Every hand's breadth of ground had been churned up again and again. Trees had been uprooted, smashed and ground to touchwood. The houses blown to bits and turned to dust. Hills had been levelled and the arable land made a desert. And yet the strangest thing of all was not the horror of the landscape in itself, but the fact that these scenes, such as the world had never known before, were fashioned by men who intended them to be a decisive end to the war. Thus all the frightfulness that the mind of man could devise was brought into the field, and there, where lately there had been the idyllic picture of rural peace, there was a faithful picture of the soul of scientific war. In earlier years, certainly, towns and villages had been burned, but what was that compared with this sea of craters dug out by machines? For even in this fantastic desert, there was the sameness of the machine-made article, 
a shell hole strewn with bully bins, broken weapons, fragments of uniform, and dud shells with one or two dead bodies on its edge. This was the never ending. This was the never-changing scene that surrounded each one of all of these hundreds of thousands of men, and it seemed that man on this landscape he had himself created became different, more mysterious and hardy and callous than in any previous battle. The spirit and tempo of the fighting altered, and after the Battle of the Somme the war had its own peculiar impress that distinguished it from all other wars. After this battle, the German soldier wore the steel helmet, and in his features there were chiselled the lines of an energy stretched to the utmost pitch, lines that future generations will perhaps find as fascinating and imposing as those of many heads of classical or renaissance times. For I cannot too often repeat, a battle was no longer an episode that spent itself in blood and fire. It was a condition of things that dug itself in remorselessly week after week and month after month, what was a man's life in this wilderness whose vapour was laden with the stench of thousands upon thousands of decaying bodies? Death lay in ambush for each one in every shell hole, merciless and making one merciless in turn. Chivalry here took a final farewell. It had to yield to the heightened intensity of war, just as all fine and personal feeling has to yield when machinery gets the upper hand. The Europe of today appeared here for the first time on the field of battle. Brilliant. It's, just it's pretty intense stuff. It's like a kind of strange civil war, European civil war, from which we never recovered, arguably. You know? But it's the first global war, yeah. really, for the for the very first time. But mm. one of the things I wanted to touch on, um, I got some facts from my reading that I thought... Facts, really nice. Well, we better try and have some linchpins, John. You can prove anything with facts. Um, <laughs> but it kind of gives you a feel for, I suppose, the, the new nature of the mechanised war that Johnny was talking about. So it says that government intervention in Britain in terms of production... Um, for the, the war years, they produced 4 million rifles, 250,000 machine guns, 52,000 aeroplanes, 2,800 tanks, 25,000 artillery pieces, and over 170 million rounds of artillery shells. Same. And to expend all of those in, in action, hmm. you just get a sense of this new paradigm mm-hmm. that's being created. Um, I suppose... Maybe from looking at the younger's perspective there in Storm of Steel, which is a book that everyone should read, um, maybe we should look at some of the aspects of, of folklore and kind of propagandizing and things mm. that came through the war, um, or some of the legends, popular legends that were kind of born on the. On it's the it's one of the interesting things. I think one of the first things that struck me, and this is probably one of the reasons why I actually thought we should really do something on kind of for Armistice Day, I remember reading. Um, testament of youth and there was a chapter in it where vera is working as a nurse and she overhears soldiers talking about ghosts on the battlefield Mm. and she hears them saying that men that they had seen um falling you know maybe a fortnight before and being killed that they saw them again coming back to help their brothers in arms Mm. and kind of taking them from trenches and it just really struck me i'm like oh these legends existed on the battlefield In, in my mind i thought that they would have more serious matters to be thinking about but that these legends existed and why wouldn't they and then when I went to do a bit of digging that article I mentioned um, by Graham Seal came to came to mind and there's also various books of um, war folk tales there's also um, papers written about the rumours of angels a legend of legend of the first world war by David Clark who talks about the angels of Mons which was a legend that grew up 
And just to kind of touch for the sake of the podcast, although we won't go into any great detail, um, I think it's fascinating to look at the folk culture of the trenches, Mm -hmm. that they had their own legends and folk tales. They had their own vernacular um, and the words that kind of grew out of the war, the slang. They had their songs. They had their games and entertainments. So like any community, the the army and this kind of insular society that they created had their own as well. And it it makes for a, a very rich furrow i suppose to mm. investigate if you if you've never considered it what was the the angel of mons what was what's the yes so the angel of mons is a story or a legend really that grew out of the belief that soldiers were assisted on the battlefield by these angels and they'd be they'd appear or they'd manifest in various ways depending on which version you heard but that you would see a white mist and then that these this army of soldiers would come and they would be, I suppose, led by this figure on a horse, which some took to be St. George. Mm-hmm. But depending on the nationality of the soldiers, they might be the patron saint of that country. So it, it tends to change. Was it seen by, by the, the Allied forces or by it the was, Germans yeah. as well? Not um, I haven't heard about the Germans. Because it was from an English it was, man it was. who wrote a fictional account or something. Yes, this is the very interesting thing that I would like to read more about when I have time. But... The legend of the angels of Mons, they believe, or some argue, that it actually came from an earlier um, kind of published title called The Bowman. Wow, what an amazing picture that is. I'm I'm now pointing to a picture of a woodcut. woodcut. It's The Bowman and Other Legends of the War by Arthur Mackin, who published a short story called The Bowman in in the early years of the war. And some people believe that the bowmen then became the angels mm-hmm. um, in popular legend um, on the battlefield. But some would also argue, well, actually, no, the legend existed before he wrote it and that he mm-hmm. took inspiration from the folk and um, the oral Leaf. culture. Mm. So it's very, like, I'm certainly not in a position to say who's right and who's wrong. But it's fascinating to believe that um, this gave great comfort to the soldiers that at times of distress and when the outcome looked to go against them, mm-hmm. that they believed this figure of protection would come and rally the troops mm-hmm. and protect them. So this, like, there, there was another, um, the, the helper in white was also another figure that they believed would come to aid them. So you do see these kind of legends growing growing out of the, the Western Front mm. and, and the various functions it served to the soldiers. The um, Some of the other, I suppose, aspects that manifest are were kind of propaganda material mm. from, from the Allies to, um, I suppose, demonise their opponents, essentially. And one of the, the, the narratives that seems to have perpetuated itself in that regard was the idea of the crucified Canadian, so-called, yes. where there, was, there were unviable, apparently kind of there, there were unverifiable you know, aspects of, kind of, of, of tradition, say, coming back from, from the front lines. Um, and one described a group of Canadian soldiers that watched from the trenches as as the enemy troops uh, pinned their comrade to a, a barn door or by or to or to uh, trees uh, by the wrists and feet with bayonets before before driving a blade into the prisoner's throat. So this apparently this uh, took place near Ypres on uh, in April nineteen fifteen, um, and I suppose the accounts are kind of diverged as to as to you know was it a tree or was it a barn door or what had occurred. Um, but it seems that it, it was a narrative actually born from an innocuous report by a night reconnaissance patrol uh, and then it was spun by British propagandists. 
So this historian Simpkins, he reports that uh, the British on, an, on a reconnaissance mission observed a force of enemy troops encamped next to what appeared to be a cross with a human figure hanging from it. Upon closer expect- inspection, the apparent crucified victim turned out to be a shadow. Um, so the idea being, I suppose, that, of course, you know, you, you well, propagandise and, and I suppose dehumanise the enemy as much as mm. one can, essentially. Um, another one was that the Kaiser had these uh, cadaver factories. Did you hear about this? No. So... Um, this has moved to be entirely false and it's kind of, again, the, the propaganda or lies that perpetuate around, around war. This is the idea that industrial plants were springing up throughout enemy territory because partly due to a naval blockade that was stopping the Germans from, from um, kind of getting uh, supplies in. So that they had a, a cadaver, a corpse processing factory, which extracted the lard uh, used for the manufacture of candles and soap and industrial lubricants and munitions. And so the idea is that there's this macabre kind of recycling program uh, which which the Germans were, were employing by ta- taking human carcasses and so on. Uh, but it was total uh, lies of propaganda, basically, which these things persist in, 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 uh, in warfare. It is, things. and I think one of the things that struck me is the level of rumour and misinformation, as you said, because... Again, there was just such a vacuum of knowledge amongst the men. Communication, like they weren't the having speed access. Speed of communications, of course, yeah. Yeah, and they wouldn't have access to newspapers or the rolling twenty-four-hour mm. news, so they very rarely knew what was happening as a larger, mm. um, on the larger picture of war. And so this vacuum seemed to have been filled by these rumours and this information and kind of what they call the trench press, which are these little periodicals that they would have published from nineteen fourteen, apparently up mm. until towards the end of the war. Which circulated not only between the, the kind of the various battalions and regiments, but also made it home as a way of kind of enforcing rumors, but also sharing information and knowledge. And lies and propaganda mm. to to, uh, to to as part of the battle for hearts and mind. Yes, yes. This is a thing as well that's worth bearing in mind. There's nothing particularly kind of oh, you know, this is so old school. This doesn't happen anymore at all. Google the uh, Naira testimony, N A Y I R A H testimony, or Google Hill and Knowlton. Gulf War, and you'll see an example in modern times where uh, one of the largest PR companies in the world used um, total total propaganda. They were filming false newsreels, mm-hmm. and they had the, the daughter of a Kuwaiti diplomat stand up before um, a kind of, I think it might have been Congress in the US, um, but stand up and give a quote-unquote testimony to describe what she saw. So in the same sense you have uh, the First World War stories of Germans bayonetting babies in Belgium and so on. Mm. And in this particular, the Naira, te- Naira testimony, you have descriptions of uh, the Iraqis taking um, babies out of incubators and leaving them to die and so on. Totally false. Mm. But it was it was shortly after that that the Americans went into the into the Gulf War later on. So that, I suppose, it's one aspect with that, propagandising to... Um, to influence, I suppose, the the emotional narrative of the civilians back home, and to and to turn the tide in the direction of war, and that's that's common, that persists. I mean, well, yeah, you need only turn the news on mm. today. You know, you what have I mean? to be so careful with what the authorities yes, tell you. Yes, always. you do. Anyway, let's move swiftly on. Um, the other, there was another um, one which I found kind of humorous. The idea that there were these wild groups of renegade soldiers who were living in no man's land who had banded together and were kind of eating corpses and stuff like this do you remember there was like the wild of no man's land yes, like on the, the trenches there were, underground there were just there, these soldiers who were kind of um who, who followed no authority or leader anymore and they were kind of banding around bearded and covered in rags and eating the dead and, and eating food and so on and that there were even rumors in the trenches that that the allies and the, the, the central powers were going to band together and gas them and destroy them all after the war because there were such kind of these these hordes of, of um, 
zombie soldiers effectively um but some other beliefs have also kind of uh, developed i mean the one around around the lighting of matches mm, i actually have something here before we play that extract actually yeah. so the belief existed that you shouldn't ever light three cigarettes from one match mm -hmm. because it, it, on a very practical level once the the light exists and stays lit too long they would say that you were an easy target for snipers mm. because the first flash or kind of is there to locate you lighting the second one gives them time to aim and then lighting the third cigarette gives them time to fire so that you were never meant to have a light um, mm -hmm. for so long and this is where is this the three strikes and you're out or oh i, I would have thought that was baseball well i did but i'm i kind of wonder what if there is a link mm -hmm. There might be, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not, not sure. sure now, I'm not yeah. sure. But um, yes, yeah, so it, it was bad luck to light um, three cigarettes from mm. a match. I know it kind of was obviously it would cause detrimental harm mm. to your life. There was also the belief, um, number 13 again, mm. as you'd expect in any kind of situation, it's still in kind of civilian life, considered an unlucky number. Then there was in one of the articles I read, this interesting idea of your number coming up. Mm. And I again, I wonder, does that tie in with that saying, oh, my number's up when you're... When you think the end is nigh, mm -hmm. because it was where there's a sample here, um, the soldier replied that he would be all right unless the shell with his number on it arrived. A few days later, the soldier was lucky to escape extinction as a dud dropped near him. Upon examining the base of the defective shell, the soldier discovered that it bore his regimental number. So basically, the bullets would come with numbers inscribed on the bottom, yeah. and if you found one um, with your number, it was a bad omen, or if you <laughs> yes, were killed, it was. and if I'd had your number that they kind of there was all this again soldiers like kind of us would have talismans things that were considered lucky to carry and equally they had these beliefs and superstitions kind of the use of magic and ritual and kind mm. of omen would be kind of an unavoidable response to this total loss of individual control over the conditions of life and death and um, that they faced mm. emotional reasoning at mm. its height when it matters most you reminded me of something there this is back to, to coningsby's book the glory of the trenches he says he sees a fellow sleeping under a tree and he says to his major, good grief, look at that chap, he's not going to last long there. I mean, what an idiot, what's he doing? And then realises that this guy has, has, has been um, uh, maimed and he's, his life is just about over. He says, then I saw that his shoulder blade had burst through his tunic and was protruding. He'd been coming out, walking freely, walking from the front and feeling that the danger was over, just as we were, when the unlucky shell had caught him. And then here's the quote, his name must have been written on it, our men say when that happens. So another version of that, your number is up or your, names, but your name is on it, it was for you. And then he says, another example of emotional reasoning, I noticed that he had black boots. Since then, nothing would persuade me to wear black boots in the trenches. I think you have those kind of symbolic, uh, irrational, emotional kind of appeals to, to reality, I suppose, that this man who's dead has black boots. I'm not, going, I'm not inviting death by wearing black boots. It's like the soldiers who wouldn't lie or rest on a stretcher. Because oh, indeed, because it, it symbolises kind of exactly your, yeah. your time wouldn't um, be long until you were lying on one. This is a piece from um, from the Urban Folklore Project in which is described the, the, the taboo of the lighting of matches, basically. Oh, yes. interpreted wrongly. Mm -hmm. You knew about the thing of the First World War and the match, you see. In the First World War, um, you often hear a person say, oh, you mustn't light, um, you mustn't use one match for three um, uh, cigarettes. Mm -hmm. You know that, mm -hmm. that superstition. Mm -hmm. That erased the First World War because in the trenches, if there were lighting cigarettes, a prolonged light mm -hmm. attracted the enemy, you see, and mm -hmm. overcame a shell. So that was why one quick match, you see, you wouldn't notice. That, that sprang from that purely and simply. It literally meant death. Mm -hmm. Of course, it doesn't matter, David, 40 cigarettes in one batch, mm -hmm. no matter a hoot, 
unless somebody <laughs> perhaps mm. had it in for you. Mm. Was there anybody belonging to you involved in the war? Oh, yes, my youngest brother. You'll see, he was in the second battalion, Royal Mounts of Fusiliers. He was in the retreat from Mons. A very unpleasant experience indeed, I tell you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if, and, um, there, yes, I, I don't think there are many superstitions really about the war, except that, that I do know, you see, that sprang from that purely and simply from that, yes, from that way. Except that I, except I found a letter from him recently written from the flat trenches all those years ago, and in it he said, this war is not to my liking. <laughs> I had to laugh, I read, I thought to myself, I bet it wasn't. <laughs> Were there many Irish lads in oh, the thousands, thousands, yeah. thousands. The 2,500 alone fell in the Battle of the Somme mm-hmm. of Irishmen, of all denominations, you see. Yeah. He, was a, he was a regular, as a matter of fact, a monstrous. Mm-hmm. And um, well, you can't keep men out, you can't keep Irishmen out of a war, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I don't know what it is that brings them in, but they, they do like it. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. Did you have heard much about our own? Miss Dorothy Emerson talking to Molly at Gluckland, and she's describing again, you know, she mentions the monster fusiliers there, but she also mentions them. Um, you can't keep the Irish out of a war, basically, that of all denominations and all sides that they're, they're, they're in there. Um, to go to just another individual, this is one of my favourite um, from the Urban Folklore Project. His name alone is wonderful. Um, Colonel Manners Fitzsimons. What just, what's O'Connell. His name? Colonel Manners Fitzsimons O'Connell. He was a direct descendant of, of Daniel O'Connell, apparently. Um, and he is describing, I, I, I've listened to other tapes of his where he's describing the rising of 1916 and uh, his experience of it. Uh, and in this instance, he, he's basically, he's off and he's fighting in the Somme, but he talks about how 13 men went out on the 13th and they took it as a bad omen, but uh, we'll let him do the talking. Yes, you're going to say Then soon afterwards, you went to Sandhurst and you became an officer. And then did you, did you go to France then, was it? Did you see yeah. action during the, the war? Yeah, yeah. In, uh, in France. In the trenches? Yeah. Very cold and very wet. Very nasty. Yeah. How long were you in France? Uh, went out on the 13th of April, 13 of us, and we thought that was rather frightening. Bad omen. There was only one poor fellow named Davis was killed. We all came back eventually. And then, uh, yes, that was after the yes, The bush had been... There was a German break, great German breakthrough on the 21st of March, 1917. By the time we got out there, things had been slightly stabilised. But me and my party in the Leinsters, we had it settled by November. And there's the armistice. But I'd been shot before then and was home, much to my annoyance. I mean, I was annoyed because I was shot and because I was wounded. Because the minute I was shot and fell down and wasn't, didn't pass out, it went through my mind. I was due for leave. No hunting this year. How did you come to be shoot, shot? Oh, a nasty German didn't either look at me and he shot at me. Were you just in a trench or what? <laughs> no. Hmm? Oh, it was during the, the beginning of the big putsch when we were go, really going forward, 28th of September uh, in 1918. 
from starting from Eve, all along the line, every available man, woman, and child that was interested in the war there was in it. <coughs> and masses of guns, almost wheel to wheel from one end of France to the other, a marvelous noise. You couldn't see anything, of course. <coughs> the weather was bloody awful. And it rained all the time, it was very cold. Um. And I was with my men, uh, one Ryan standing beside me, and we were shivering. It was about sometime about uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. Paddy Ryan. And Paddy is soaking clothes. I can see him now pulling his ground sheet round him. He looked up the sky and says, It's a soft day, sir, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's too bloody soft, said Paddy. And then, like a silly ass, there was a certain amount of shooting left, certain, I can't remember it all, certain on the right, and I didn't, I wasn't quite sure where the rest of the company was, which was one a bit behind, I know. And I stood up on a piece of ground beside, with no trench, it was a lumpy sort of undulating ground. And... Um, I was knocked for six. The bullet hit me right bang on the stomach. But struck the belt, my buckle of my belt, and it lifted me off my feet. Thinking over it days afterwards, the extraordinary power of a bullet when it's really gathered its full speed, because the person just shot was about 200 yards away, actually took me off my feet and knocked every breath out of me. Um, but there was no hunting. Yeah. Was there a bad wound? It was unpleasant. Much blood? I really don't know. Mm. It was all dried up by the time I'd been taken away. So yeah. you weren't invalided for long or anything like that? No? I was... That was 20... Things started on the 28th of September... And I was wounded on the 1st of October. And I was passed when I came out of hospital as A3, sent on leave, indefinite leave, uh, to be examined in another month's time. And I was able to ride my motorbike down to the Curragh and be examined again, and I was made... Uh, a something or other. Anyway, I was past A1. Mm-hmm. About six weeks after I came out of hospital. And I'm happy to say I was in London with my mother on Armistice Day. And my mother was tight, and I was tight, and two friends of mine were tight, and everybody was tight. <laughs> and we had, this was by about seven o'clock in the evening. I didn't know there was an armistice or anything like that. I left my mother in her studio down in Chelsea and I was going up to the bank in Brompton Road to cash a check. And I was walking leisurely along and I heard cheering, looked behind and saw an army lorry coming, full of soldiers, all waving their caps in the air. And I thought, good God, this is frightful, dreadful behaviour. It was just by the bank I went in, and there was a lot of chatter going on. I said, what the hell is going on? He said, haven't you heard the war's over? And I said, no, no, it's over. We're over. We're going to shut the bank. 
And then I got my money before we got. So that's uh, matters for Simon describing time of the trenches, and then his his experience of the armistice as well. Um, so many of them speak about bullets ricocheting off their belts. It's one of those common motifs. I've read a few of those as mm-hmm. well that they were saved, but for the fact, um, or they were saved by this ricochet. Mm. Very interesting. I'm like, how convenient that so many bullets ricocheted off belts. Um, the I suppose his talking about the armistice leads us back to the to the to the the exhibition, the Google Arts and Culture exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before we finish up, we play this is an interview with the head of special collections here in UCD, Evelyn Flanagan. Uh, Claire, you interviewed her a while ago about about the. So I spoke to Evelyn about the special collections contribution to the armistice exhibition, and she gave me an interesting insight into certain collections that they have, one of them being the first report of the Irish War Hospital Supply Group. And this was a project carried out during the war where sphagnum moss, which was a, a variety of moss known for its antiseptic and absorbent um, qualities, was gathered across Ireland. And they had, even when you just look at the map of areas that they had these collection depots, there's almost one in every county in the Free State. And so they would gather this moss clean it, dry it, and then create these um, dressings that they would send to the front. And it was a wonderful way of kind of contributing, I suppose, to the war effort and feeling that you were helping your loved ones abroad. But again, it just touches on the role of women and how it could often be overlooked and forgotten. So it's nice that these stories come back. Um, one of the f- figures I read was that 5,688 women joined the, the Red Cross and the St. John's Ambulance. So there's this whole layer of war um, history that it's nice to kind of shed a light on now and to see the role of women but Evelyn speaks a bit about the project. So I'm here with Evelyn Flanagan who is head of special collections here in UCD library and I have to say it's lovely to get to chat to someone other than Johnny Evelyn. Thank you very much Claire. (laughs) You're very welcome. So what we were going to do just very briefly by way of um, I suppose tying the collections together for the special edition is I wanted to ask you about the UCD decade of centenaries commemorations and what you had in mind for armistice, the armistice and anniversary or any kind of exhibitions or events that you had coming up. Yeah, so I'm working with um, Chris Thor from Folklore and Kate um, from UCD Archives on creating an online exhibition which sort of... Um, which on basically World War One, on all of World War One. So looking through our collections for material on that. So one of the most interesting things that we have in special collections relation to World War One are the reports of the Irish War Hospital Supply Group. Um so this was um an organization that was um established um by women whereby um, women all over Ireland collected a moss called sphagnum moss from Irish bogs. There were depots all over Ireland and the main depot was in the Royal College of Science, which I had mentioned, which was in Merrion Square where government buildings are now. The moss was brought there, um, it was cleaned and washed and sewed into dressings. And the reason that they did this was because the moss was actually extremely absorbent and also had antiseptic qualities. So the moss was then dispatched to to hospitals in Ireland, but also um, in Britain and on the continent and as far away as Palestine and modern day Iraq and Egypt. Um, we're having the, this dressings with moss from bogs from County Mayo um, and all over Ireland. So, um, uh, there were there are several reports and the reports have photographs of um, the women working in the Royal College of Science sewing the dressings. They also have maps showing um, what parts of Ireland the moss was collected from. Um, they have letter, excerpts of letters that were sent 
from hospital the hospitals in the places that I mentioned, thanking people for for the work that they were doing and explaining how wonderful these dressings were. Um, and I suppose the the women who were involved in this. Um, where it felt like that this was the only way, or they have very few ways to probably help their um, mostly men folk who yeah. are actually taking part um, in the war itself and wanted to do something, and this was their way of helping, which was very helpful, but also the fact that this was happening in Dublin at the same time as the rising and the aftermath of the rising um, was happening um, it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition there I think to, to remember that there's there are all these things happening in parallel um, and that for everything there's, there's a context absolutely especially when we can remember how many Irish men, men. would have fought in British yeah. forces and sometimes I know that's we're getting better at recognising that but for a long time that was kind of the untold story yeah like deliberately forgotten for a long time but thankfully um, being being told more now and um, I think again in when people have been looking at history sometimes the the role that women have played in history has been um, kind of they've been written out to, to a certain extent so this was an amazing enterprise run completely by women and which it was a very important enterprise so I think it's, it's really worth telling that story amazing well, so there's several reports um yeah so it's it's great to have that material here and that would have come from the Royal College of Science collection and where can people access that so they're in special collections so if somebody wants to come in um, they can email us at special.collections at ucd.ie to make an appointment to come in and um, uh, we'll have a card available for them so they can come in and read them in special collections reading room which is in the main library the James Joyce library in UCD amazing and I can vouch that you are one of the friendliest teams so that <laughs> everyone is very welcome this is what I say to all of our classes that come in we want you to come in because we want you to use our collections and also we want you to know that we don't bite <laughs> absolutely oh well thank you so much Evelyn you have passed the test and when I eventually get rid of Johnny I'm coming straight for you okay amazing. thanks very much Claire. thanks so much okay thank you Claire I okay. see. Knife it's in the back, all right clear. there. Yeah, stabs, dying and beating in the trenches. So I just a note of thanks um, to Evelyn for her time. Um, it was lovely to speak to her and just to learn a bit more about our shared collections here in UCD. Indeed. Um, we have marched wearily to the front and back again. We have, we have. Um, we best we sign shall. off. We will. So we're both going to finish with some little poems, some little bits that... Um, well, sum it up, sum things up in ways for us, I suppose. And then we're going to finish with um, a last a piece piece from, from the archive recording from 1949 by Breedine the Iranon, who's from Inishmore in the Aran Islands. And the last piece that we're going to play is, is a lament. It's a lament for the dead, basically, um, which we play, I suppose, for all the dead of World War One, and those who are those known and unknown um, who, who fell in that, in that war and those who were affected by it. So we'll, we'll finish up with that before... Um, I'm going to start reading um, a poem which I particularly uh, find particularly arresting by Ezra Pound. It's called Hugh Selwyn Marbury. It's an extract from this poem which he wrote in 1920, um, dealing with, among other things, I suppose, aspects of, of the war and, I suppose, the sense of um, the disillusionment that it, that, it, that it brought afterwards in its wake. So this is Ezra Pound, from a, sele- a selection from Hugh Selwyn Marbury. He says... These fought in any case, and some believing pro domo in any case. Some quick to arm, some for adventure, some from fear of weakness, some from fear of censure, some for love of slaughter in imagination, learning later. 
some in fear, learning love of slaughter. Died some pro patria, non dolce, non et decor. Walked I deep in hell, believing in old men's lies, then unbelieving. Came home, home to a lie, home to many deceits, home to old lies and new infamy. Usury age old and age thick, and liars in public places. Daring as never before, wastage as never before, young blood and high blood, fair cheeks and fine bodies. Fortitude as never before, frankness as never before, disillusions as never told in the old days. Hysterias, trench confessions, laughter out of dead bellies. There died a myriad, and of the best among them, for an old bitch gone in the teeth, for a botched civilization. Charm, smiling at the good mouth, quick eyes gone under the earth's lid, for two gross of broken statues, for a few thousand battered books. Um, so that's, that's well, Ezra Pound, Hugh Sal Morbley, and his response to the World War, which had a huge personal impact on him, I suppose, and uh, that's his approach, mm-hmm. or his poem to it. And I'm going to finish up um, with a last few lines from Vera Britton. And this is her, following the war, um, she meets her what will be her husband, who actually, in a strange turn of coincidence, fought alongside her brother. And this is her, kind of, I suppose, embarking on, on a new chapter as she kind of emerges from the darkness. So this is them meeting on a train. I was halfway up the train and had almost abandoned hope when I came upon him in the process, like myself, of exploring the corridor, very tall, very thin, a little dishevelled and forgetful in his urgent seeking of the haughty air worn by young dons who deliberately go steerage. Quite suddenly he saw me and started eagerly forward, his hands outstretched and his face a radiance of recognition beneath his wide-brimmed hat. And as I went up to him and took his hands, I felt that I had made no mistake. And although I knew that, in a sense which could never be true of him, I was linked with the past that I had yielded up, inextricably and forever, I found it not inappropriate that the years of frustration and grief and loss, of work and conflict and painful resurrection, should should have led me through their dark and devious ways to this new beginning. A note of hope. I always like to end on a note of hope. Um, It's the very least we can do to to honour their memory and to to live the best lives we can. Indeed, this is very true. Let us not forget them. May they rest in peace. Um, See you next month. See you next month, buddy. Mm -hmm. Slán. And more hard
Oh, 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 oh,